Hey everybody, it is August 2021. Welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu. Before we jump in, I want to remind you that this month we expect the EB Medicine mobile app to be released, so keep an eye on your email for that exciting announcement. I have been looking forward to this for some time, and I can't wait to have access to all of that information in the palm of my hand at the patient bedside. This is going to be a game changer for EB Medicine. This is a special episode of Amplify because today we are focusing on the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article titled Less Lethal Law Enforcement Weapons, authored by Dr. Jessica Osterman and Dr. Kara Buchanan. It appears in the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice Journal, but it actually has a lot of relevance for both the adult and the pediatric populations. So today we're going to highlight this article and walk through it and discuss some of these weapons that are used in law enforcement that may actually present to you in the emergency department in the form of a patient either seeking medical clearance or acute treatment for an injury. I don't know about you, but I find this topic particularly fascinating. There's always been some part of me that's been fascinated with cool tech, and that includes weapons, honestly. So I learned several things reading through this article. First, let's talk about the different kinds of weapons that law enforcement are currently using. There are things like pepper spray and other gases. There are conducted electrical weapons, those things like tasers and stun guns. There, of course, are animals, our canine officers. There are less lethal projectiles, beanbags and beanbag guns, rubber bullets, and finally, things like sting balls. These are grenades with canisters filled with rubber projectiles, gas, and other things that all are released at the same time. Now, these are typically meant to be deployed either into a large crowd to disperse it, or on a single solitary person in order to get them to stop resisting arrest. And so when these patients show up to you in the emergency department, either for medical clearance or acute treatment of an injury, our focus needs to be on what kind of weapon was used, why it was used, what the proximity was to the patient in order for us to figure out what kind of injury pattern we should be looking for when we go to examine the patient. However, it is equally important to keep in mind that patients are usually agitated, might have alterations in their mental status, might have other intoxicants in their system or drugs. And so if there is alteration in mental status, you can't just attribute that to the weapon that was used, and it's important to address that separately. And when we're talking about addressing that separately in the emergency department, that means the evaluation for altered mental status, including things like infection, intoxication, drugs, trauma, central nervous system injury, all of those things can also cause alterations in mental status. We can't just attribute the agitation and alteration to the person resisting arrest or trying to run from law enforcement. So 
The encounter begins in the pre-hospital setting. And for our pre-hospital colleagues who are listening to this podcast, this is a critical encounter period with the patient, not just for the patient care, but also for you. Depending on the kind of less lethal weapon that was deployed, there may actually be exposure to you as EMS personnel showing up on the scene. And so it's very important to get that ahead of time from law enforcement before you walk into this area. You should have adequate PPE. You should be including eye protection in that PPE, especially if there's a gas involved. And you should be aware that there is decontamination of the patient that needs to occur before they can be placed on the stretcher and into your ambulance. That decontamination can be just simply removing their clothing, or it may need more serious water-based decontaminant, wiping down the skin, and beginning all of that before you pull the patient into the ambulance with you into an enclosed environment where you can then be exposed to whatever it was that was used on the patient. So pre-hospital, step one is donning the correct PPE, and step two would be the field decontamination of the patient before transport. And since this is the initiation of our encounter with the patient, this is a good time to talk about the healthcare system engagement with the patient. Obviously, this is a very high-risk scenario for law enforcement and for the patient. There are weapons being deployed. There is all kinds of agitation and resistance going on between the two parties, and our approach needs to encompass all of that. There is actually a movement called Trauma-Informed Care, which really is an approach to the patient, which takes into account all of the negative impact of this psychological trauma that may change the patient's behavior. So verbal redirection for agitation is important. Trying to calm the patient and assert that you're just there to help the patient is very important, but also understanding the reasons why they may be resisting some of your therapies can be hard to judge. So taking just a few minutes to explain what you're doing as you're doing it and changing the narrative to what happened to you as opposed to why are you acting this way or why did they have to shoot you with a rubber bullet can sometimes make the patient more cooperative and then give you some insight into what's going on, but also allow the patient to participate in this history and physical examination and the treatment that you're about to give them. First up is the conductive electrical weapons. The most commonly recognized weapon in this category is the taser, which interestingly was actually commercially introduced back in 1974. The creator of the weapon used an acronym for the statement Thomas A. Swift's electronic rifle, or taser, named after Thomas Swift, who happened to be the inventor's favorite childhood book character, who had built an electronic rifle that could shoot bolts of electricity. So that's where the word taser comes from, or at least the name of the device. And like I said before, it was introduced commercially back in 1974, and since then it's been deployed for most law enforcement agencies. And it has two modes. First is the stun mode, which involves direct contact of the device to another person. And second is the probe mode, which deploys two darts at a range of anywhere from 15 to 20 feet. 
In both scenarios, you've got high voltage and low current electricity going through the person. It causes involuntary, uncoordinated skeletal muscle contraction, which then prevents the person from having voluntary movement, and it is quite painful. The discharge lasts about 15 seconds, and the efficacy of the device is affected by distance, so the farther they are away, the less effective it is, and also in the very extremes of temperature. Some of the things you have to consider when you're looking at someone with a taser injury are the actual soft tissues that were involved. So tissue susceptibility depends on the resistance of the tissue to the electricity, making eyeballs or ocular tissue actually the most susceptible because of its low resistance to the electrical current. The article actually has a well-organized table. This is table one titled Injuries Associated with Conductive Electrical Weapons, which breaks down the most common injuries, things like abrasions, dart lacerations, and skin erythema, as well as maybe increased respiratory rate uh, as a respiratory symptom, and some of the more serious but rare associated injuries, things like intracranial perforation or intracerebral perforation or seizures or cardiac ischemia and dysrhythmias or ventricular tachycardia. These are the things that are far more rare. It is generally considered to be a safe weapon, but there are case reports of an abundance of serious injuries, pneumothorax, pharyngeal perforation, thermal burns, metabolic acidosis and rhabdomyolysis, testicular torsion, miscarriage, dart ingestion, and the list goes on. These things are very, very serious, but fortunately rare. So when you're seeing the patient, the most common things are going to be the dermal injuries where the darts penetrated the skin, which brings us to treatment. Most of the evidence we have for evaluation and treatment is actually from the adult population, and the American Academy of Emergency Medicine actually has a statement that states that when these weapons are deployed, if they're discharged for less than 15 seconds and the patient has a normal examination, that there really is no extended monitoring or specific testing that is necessary. And that's an important differentiator. So the weapon is supposed to discharge for five seconds. It can be used multiple times. Up to 15 seconds in duration is usually tolerated well. And as long as the patient is awake and alert, there's no standard of care to do anything else. However, if the patient is symptomatic, that's a different story. The diagnostic workup in that scenario is considered in the context of whatever the patient's history may be. If they have a history of cardiac disease and there was sudden syncope associated, then sure, they may benefit from further testing, maybe ECG. If the person is complaining of severe diffuse muscle pain, then yeah, an investigation for rhabdomyolysis would be helpful. So checking a creatinine kinase, perhaps electrolytes and renal testing those would be helpful studies in that patient scenario. If the patient was tased and then fell 20 feet onto concrete, obviously that changes the scenario and changes where your examination should be focused. So it's not just injuries from the electrical shock itself. It is also associated injuries. 
And as we mentioned before, if the patient is presenting with alteration of mental status or agitation or is uptunded, then these are things that also need further evaluation. This is not normal to see after just a tasing injury. All that aside, one of the most common presentations you're going to see is actually a presentation to the emergency department for removal of the dart. These things typically penetrate the skin, and removal can be performed in one of three ways. They're designed so that they can be pulled directly out of the skin, so just pull straight back on the wire connected to the dart. You can also use some of the techniques we use for removal of fish hooks. So if you know the direction of the barb, you could use a 16-gauge needle over the barb to remove it, or you could inject some lidocaine into the area and make a formal incision to free the barb. So those are some of the approaches you can use. The most common is just to pull the barb directly out of the skin. There is actually an interesting picture in the article of one of these barbs penetrating a globe. That, again, would be one of the more serious and thankfully very rare complications of deployment of this weapon. In that scenario, you're obviously not going to be pulling on this barb yourself, and you're going to require the assistance of our specialists. But just be aware that these things can penetrate other locations, especially if they're accidentally aimed at the head and neck. Okay, let's move on to category two. These are the chemical irritants, and primarily we're going to focus on two kinds, pepper spray and tear gas. Before we get into that, the first step in the patient evaluation pre-hospital, and especially in the ED if it wasn't done pre-hospital, is decontamination and safety of the personnel treating the patient. So appropriate PPE is absolutely critical. We're talking gloves, gowns, eye protection, and a mask. And then decontamination of the patient, which involves removal of all clothing and generally large volumes of water to make sure that any material left on their skin is completely washed off. There actually are case reports of injury to hospital staff while performing life-saving procedures, things like emergency intubation, and then subsequently getting exposed to the chemicals on the patient's skin while treating them for a life-threatening injury because the decontamination did not take place beforehand. So it's a critical step and needs to be done as soon as possible. So pepper spray is the first chemical irritant we're going to be discussing, and it is actually oleoresin capsaicin. And you may recognize the word capsaicin. It's derived from chili peppers in the genus capsicum, and it's available for law enforcement use, but also actually can be bought over the counter for personal use. The mechanism of action of the capsaicin in this particular setting is really not well understood, but the symptoms induced are that of something called heat allodynia, which really includes things like neurogenic inflammation, vasodilation, and mucus secretion, and coughing. So patients are going to present with skin burning and tingling and edema and erythema, and maybe even blistering or allergic dermatitis, which is thankfully a more rare presentation. 
there's obviously going to be excessive lacrimation, lots and lots of tearing, which is the primary method that this gas or spray incapacitates the person it's being used on. And there may be excessive sneezing as well. And much like our previous weapon category, there is a second table, table two in the publication, which lists the most common and the more severe associated injuries with pepper spray. So common things like we've discussed lacrimation, conjunctivitis, and maybe even corneal erosions, ulcerations, and edema or chemosis, depending on how far away the person was from the spray. Also, rhinorrhea, cough, pharyngitis, and then the skin inflammation, erythema, and hyperemia, and burning sensation are all common. Thankfully, they're transient. They generally don't require much in the way of treatment other than irrigation. And then there are the more severe, sometimes life-threatening effects uh, that are thankfully very rare. And in patients who have diseases like asthma, or COPD, bronchospasm can be exceedingly severe. Pulmonary edema can occur. You can develop a chemical pneumonitis if you inhale large quantities of the gas, and you can have things like spontaneous pneumomediastinum because of the excessive coughing and some of the respiratory distress that accompanies exposure to the gas. Some of the skin severe findings can actually be chemical burns. These are typically seen in products that use isopropyl alcohol as a carrier, but just be aware that this can occur. And again, this is all listed in Table 2 in the article, so I encourage you to go and take a look. Much like in the case with electrical weapons, when we're evaluating a patient who's been exposed to pepper spray, we do want to know the circumstances. So eliciting the history specifically asking questions like how far away was the person spraying from the person who got exposed? What was the environment like? Was it indoors or outdoors? Was it sprayed all over their face? Perhaps did it get into their mouth? And then eliciting a history of past medical illnesses all can be helpful in deciding how to treat the patient. It is important to focus on the ocular exam. There is frequently exposure to the eyes, and fluorescein staining will help when you're trying to determine if there are corneal abrasions or injuries there associated with just the effects of the gas on the eye. And that'll also help determine who needs ophthalmology follow-up for persistent symptoms. Treatment for eye injuries is similar to any chemical exposure in the eyes. Contact lenses should be removed, eyes are going to be irrigated for 10 to 15 minutes, and typically the pH of these gas-containing products is normal, but if there's any concern that there might have been multiple agents or the agent is unknown, checking a pH is helpful, and then you can continue irrigation until the pH reaches the normal 7.4. Topical treatments can be used on the skin, and there actually have been studies but they haven't found any difference in the solution that you use to irrigate or clean the skin. So water alone versus some kind of aluminum hydroxide or magnesium hydroxide solution or lidocaine gel or baby shampoo or even milk, all of these things have been used to try and decontaminate someone's skin. None of them have been shown to be better than others, but use what you have.
Our second chemical irritant is tear gas, and this is distinctly different from pepper spray. Tear gas is actually a group of multiple chemicals, all causing lacrimation or excessive tearing. That, again, is the primary method it's going to disable the person who is being exposed. The most common are two chemicals. This is chlorobenzilidine, which I will refer to as CS gas from now on, and chloroacetophenone, which is referred to as CN gas. CN is actually the older or precursor chemical that was used and in 1965 was marketed over the counter as MACE, but eventually CS replaced CN because it had a better safety profile. Regardless of which gas was used, the expected effects of tear gas are really subduing someone by prompting irritation of all of the mucosal surfaces. So this means involuntary closure of the eyes, excessive tearing, and maybe some respiratory irritation with the intent of incapacitating the person within seconds of exposure to the gas. And just like we discussed with other weapons, the method of deployment is going to be critical for treatment of the patient. CS gas can be aerosolized using crystalline CS by dissolving it into a solvent, or it can be pulverized into a fine micro powder that is then sprayed at the person. But it can also be packaged into a grenade or even a projectile that's shot from a cannon or a handheld weapon and ignites with hot gas. So differentiating the method of deployment from simply the gas used is critical in trying to figure out how to treat the patient in front of you. Because now we're not simply talking about effects of the gas, we're also talking about potential injuries from the projectile or explosive device used to deploy the gas. So table three in this article lists the injuries associated with tear gas, and again, the most common being expected ones, lacrimation, conjunctivitis, blepharospasm, maybe some respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, rhinorrhea, pharyngitis, skin erythema, and even gastrointestinal symptoms like diarrhea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. But then there are going to be the more significant, very serious injuries, like penetrating traumatic brain injury from the method of deployment, open fractures and severe vascular injury, eye injuries that involve globe rupture or corneal perforation, severe lung injury like pulmonary edema or necrotizing laryngotracheobronchitis, chemical burns of the skin, and even thermal burns, again, from the device used to deploy the gas. So we're talking a wide spectrum of injuries, all based on method of deployment, how close the person was to the method of deployment, and how much of the chemical got into what part of their body. 
when we talk about treatment, again, it's decontamination always as step number one. And then it's going to be removing clothing, making sure everyone is wearing proper PPE, and then evaluating the entire patient for associated injuries. Again, for the ocular wounds, we're looking at fluorescein examination, which is particularly important for looking for retained particles or corneal pathology, including erosions and ulcers. The respiratory symptoms are worse if there is prolonged exposure or high concentrations like in an enclosed, poorly ventilated setting. In that case, patients may present with respiratory distress, and then you're going down that pathway. So you're placing them on pulse oximetry, on monitors. You may need blood gases and laboratory testing and chest X-ray, and all of that is based on symptomology. So again, there's no standard evaluation. There's no minimum standard of care other than just a complete evaluation to determine how bad the exposure was. If they have gastrointestinal effects, these typically resolve spontaneously without any intervention or treatment, and the use of things like gastric lavage or activated charcoal is definitely not recommended. And then, of course, traumatic injuries are evaluated differently. So these are from the canisters or the projectiles, and you may need x-ray or CT imaging, and now we're talking more of a trauma patient than we are just a chemical exposure. And then lastly is just irrigation. You're irrigating the skin, you're removing clothing. If you're doing eye irrigation, it's 10 to 15 minutes of saline or water. And specifically if you're treating a child, you know, placing things like lenses in to irrigate eyes can be very traumatic. So you may need sedation for a patient in order to appropriately provide the decontamination and irrigation necessary. And in that case, it just makes it even more important to have an accurate history and to get a good baseline for the mental status of the child before you get ready to sedate them. And lastly, when we're talking about respiratory injuries, there are case reports of delayed pulmonary edema, but there is no standard period of time we need to observe the patient. If they have a normal examination and they have no symptoms, it is safe to discharge them with instructions to return if they get worse. The caveat there is that they have to actually understand those instructions and they have to be able to actually return. So if they're leaving and being incarcerated and there's no one going to be watching over them, that's a different scenario than if you're discharging somebody home with their parents and saying, please bring them back if there's any change in their symptoms. All right, let's move on to the third category of non-lethal weapons and perhaps actually my favorite, and that's the canine police officers. Most of us are probably familiar with the German Shepherd as representing the canine officer, but there are other large, well-trained breeds that are utilized, things like the Belgian Malinois or the Doberman Pinscher or even the Rottweiler. So they may come in different breeds, and all of them are highly trained to bite and hold at maximum force when necessary. When it's been measured, the Pounds per square inch from a canine police dog can be anywhere from 500 to 2,000, which, for frame of reference, if you're comparing it to the domestic dog bite, their pressure or pounds per square inch has been registered at 200 to 400. So it's a significant 
increase in the amount of pressure that police dogs can apply to someone they're trying to restrain. And this becomes pertinent because in 1992, L.A. County began a different training method. Instead of the bite and hold, which was the traditional training for canine units, it became find and bark, in which the canine officer will actually find the person and bark at them and then only bite them in order to restrain them if they try to run. This was actually adopted by the U.S. Department of Justice in 2001 and did reduce the frequency of canine bites that we see in the emergency department. But when they do occur, the canine bite severity is all over the spectrum. The studies cited in the article tell us that it's more common to see the canine injuries with our adult patients, but when they do occur with the pediatric population, so those less than 18 years old, especially those 14 years old and younger, the injuries tend to be more severe. And once again, keeping with our other weapons, there is a table. This is table four in the publication that discusses the most common injuries associated with canine bites, but also the most significant injuries. In this scenario, the most common are large tissue avulsions, puncture wounds, and crush injuries, along with cortical violations of the bone and minor fractures. But the more severe Thankfully, more rare, but also more severe injuries include things like arterial injuries, open fractures, open joints, tendon and nerve injuries, compartment syndrome, and then if the bite occurs not on an extremity, but somewhere in the trunk or the neck, you could get facial fractures, laryngeal or tracheal injuries, air emboli, and upper airway obstruction or pneumothorax as a result of the injury. Obviously, these are far more significant injuries. It is important to note that the canines themselves are actually trained to bite at extremities and not at the central trunk. But as the person gets smaller, so say the pediatric population, that becomes a little more tricky. And that's where we tend to see some of the more central bites according to the studies cited in the article. So with such a vast array of potential presentations, how do we approach these patients? Really the same way we would all of the other patients. History is important. Understanding how long the dog had bitten the patient and how long the dog was on the patient before the release command was given is helpful. Also, evaluating the wounds for the presence of vascular injuries is critical. There actually is an increased use of angiography in patients with these injuries, and rightfully so, because the sheer power and crushing force, along with the penetrating ability of these injuries, does yield higher vascular injuries. But it is also important to document neurological deficits, motor deficits, potential tendon and nerve injuries, and bony fractures. So there is a good bit of imaging that takes place, and there is consultation with our surgical colleagues. Plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery, compartment syndromes can occur, and so multiple joint and extremity assessments may need to occur along with imaging in order to exclude all of the potential injuries. There is an area of controversy here, and that's specifically related to antibiotic prophylaxis. At least one study cited recommended 
the use of prophylactic antibiotics for the high-risk wounds. And they listed these as puncture wounds, bites to the wrist and hand or foot, and crush wounds with a lot of devitalized tissue. These are common characteristics of these canine bites. However, another study found that even with antibiotic prophylaxis, about 5% of these bite wounds developed infection. And so there still is a little gray area here about whether or not it's recommended. The one thing that you don't have to worry about is rabies. All of these trained police dogs are all up to date on their vaccinations and get frequent veterinary care. And so rabies prophylaxis is unnecessary. All right, let's turn to the last category of non-lethal weapons. These are called the kinetic impact projectiles. We're talking about things like rubber bullets, beanbag guns, and sting balls. And these weapons cause injury in one of three distinct ways. First is the primary wound tract, especially if it penetrates the skin or soft tissue and crushes the tissue in its path. Second is injury that occurs as a contusion to the muscle around the projectile track. And last is the concussion zone, as it's been termed, where shockwaves from the initial impact cause damage to more distant or internal structures. First, let's chat about rubber bullets. These are shot, and so they, they're projectiles. They can cause serious injury. They're not intended to penetrate the skin, but that certainly can occur, especially in close proximity. Because of the potential for penetrating injuries, and in rare, very rare cases, thankfully, even death, some of the law enforcement agencies have actually transitioned to using alternative types of bullets, things like sponge foam, which are supposed to penetrate the skin with less frequency and cause less trauma. There are beanbag munitions. These are typically two by two inch nylon bags that are filled with metal balls or lead shot. And as they come out and are projected, that larger surface area is supposed to reduce the chances of penetration of the skin and cause more superficial injury. And similar to the modifications we saw with rubber bullets, there are some less lethal versions of these bean bags. Uh, their shape has been altered, the contents has been altered, so there are varieties in the types of bean bags being used. And lastly is the sting ball, or really a stinger grenade. This is an explosive device. It's meant to deploy rubber bullets from a canister like the inside of a grenade, but it can also emit a significant amount of light a very loud sound, and sometimes it's combined with small quantities of pepper spray or even tear gas. So we're talking multiple agents deployed all at the same time, but with the intent of being deployed from a distance. And so, again, history is critical here. Proximity to the explosion matters, and matters a lot. When we're treating injuries that are associated with these weapons, there are numerous variety. And again, another table. I really appreciate these tables from the authors, by the way. Table five lists the most common and most serious injuries associated with these kinetic impact projectiles. The common ones are simply superficial, contusions, lacerations, and hematomas. But the more significant or serious ones can be life-threatening intracranial perforation, traumatic intracranial bleeds and skull fractures, 
organ contusions and lacerations of the liver or the spleen, uh, vascular injuries, neurological injuries, open fractures, uh, ophthalmologic injuries like an open globe, pulmonary injuries like pneumothorax and pulmonary contusions, and on and on and on, primarily determined by, again, how far you are from the explosion, and second, what part of the body is involved. This kind of non-lethal weapon is associated with a whole other class of injuries, and that's burns, which can occur, again, with increasing frequency depending on how far you are away from the explosion. So now we add that to the differential or possible associated injuries as well. And one of the key problems that can occur in this kind of injury is the lack of overlying evidence of trauma. So people can have what appear to be minor contusions and hematomas with more significant underlying internal organ injury from the concussive forces. And so Although we begin with things like plain radiography, CT imaging can actually be pretty crucial if you're looking at projectile injuries or penetrating injuries or blunt traumatic injuries overlying solid organs. Also important is the contents of the bean bags and the rubber bullets. These are non-sterile items. So if they penetrate the body, they should be removed. Otherwise, there is actually an increased risk of infection, especially with the bean bags. So our evaluation in the emergency department is not only imaging, but if there's any concern for cardiac contusion, we're talking ECG, echocardiography, troponin testing. If there are worries for infected wounds or lots of debris in the wound, then primary closure is not a good idea, and you actually have to leave wounds open, maybe loosely approximate them and bring people back for secondary wound closure, usually recommended after five to seven days, assuming all of the foreign body material is removed. And again, bean bags should be removed. They're capable of retaining a significant amount of bacteria, which causes bad wound infections, they must come out. And that's not to mention all the things they pull into the wound with them, like hair and clothing fibers. So prophylactic antibiotics is typically administered whenever there's a retained projectile, especially with anyone having a retained beanbag, but then the actual foreign body has to come out. And if there are multiple organs or solid organ injuries, these patients are getting consultations with trauma surgery or being admitted to a trauma center, hopefully just observed and getting non-operative intervention, but really all of that depends on the type of injury. I encourage you to go read the full article and take a look at all the wonderful images and tables included. There are x-rays, scans, pictures of all kinds of gruesome injuries that have occurred because of penetration of these things into the human body, and not just for the macabre of looking at these images, but just to understand that these are possible. Though we call them less lethal, there are injuries that can occur and be very serious or very life-threatening, and we are going to be that line of defense for the patient who has been injured with one of these weapons. And that's it for this article. So three case presentations in the article. I'll tell you one is a 10-year-old girl who's brought to the emergency department with eye burning after being exposed to tear gas. Second is a 14-year-old girl who's brought in by law enforcement just for simple medical clearance. 
to go to a detention facility, but she was actually arrested after being subdued with a beanbag, non-lethal weapon being deployed, and was struck in the right upper quadrant of the abdomen and has a little hematoma there and some tenderness. And the third is a 17-year-old boy who's brought in again before being taken to a juvenile facility by law enforcement because of retained darts from a taser injury, complaining of some low back pain and having tenderness in the midline lumbar spine over L1. And I will not give you any spoilers. All three of those cases are discussed extensively in the article. I recommend you go read them. The outcomes may surprise you and hopefully teach you something. And that's a wrap for this special episode of Amplify. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. Again, this was the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice publication for the month of August on Less Lethal Weapons. Go to ebmedicine.net and take a look at the full issue and claim your CME. And again, keep an eye out on your email for that exciting announcement. I can't wait for the EB Medicine mobile app coming to you later this month. Until next time, be safe, everyone.